Okay. The reading for today, as Scott said, Matthew 27, verse 35. That's just right of Malachi and left of Mark, page 705. Verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Carini named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross they came to a place called Golgotha which means the place of the skull there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall but after tasting it he refused to drink it when they had crucified him they divided up his clothes by casting lots and sitting down they kept watch over him there Above his head they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. That's the word for the day. Thank you. <clears throat> Crucifixion is a very cruel way of killing somebody. It was the Persians who invented crucifixion, um, but it was the Romans who perfected it. They were the masters of crucifixion. Uh, 
It was so cruel that even Roman thinkers, politicians and philosophers in the uh, period around the first century described crucifixion as being the most obscene, disgraceful and horrific form of execution known to man. It was so painful that it is where we get the English word excruciating from. Excruciating comes from the Latin ex, which means out of, uh, crux, which means the cross, out of the cross. We tend to think of the obvious pain, don't we? We think of the hands and the feet being nailed to a cross. Uh, we think of the, the lacerated veins and the, and the tendons. We think of the hunger, the thirst. Medical experts have studied crucifixion uh, in order to determine its effect on the human body and what it does to our physiology. They say that, uh, amongst many things, that uh, when a person's body is hung from a crucifix, that as the body slumps, that air is trapped inside the lungs. And so in order to exhale, uh, to breathe out, that the victim has to actually uh, push his body upwards uh, on his um, nail-driven-through feet uh, in order to create the, the, the cavity so that the air can actually be released from his, from his lungs. So there are massive breathing problems caused by crucifixion and those breathing problems uh, cause carbon dioxide to build up uh, in, in, in the blood system. Uh, there is a build-up of fluid around the heart and around the lungs uh, which creates a, a very deep... A very crushing pain on the person's heart. And so the heart is really struggling. The heart struggles to, to pump out uh, thick, sluggish blood throughout the body system whilst the lungs uh, work frantically and increasingly frantically to, to inhale just small gulps of air. There are terrible muscle-twisting cramps throughout the victim's body. There is the searing pain as the already lacerated uh, flesh of the victim's back, lacerated from the whipping beforehand, uh, is uh, grates up and down the coarse timber of the wooden pole as the victim pushes upwards and then slumps downwards in order to breathe. It is a slow, painful death which could take days. The victim would either suffocate or die from a cardiac arrest. It is an outrageous method of execution. But in the Roman Empire, it was an everyday event. As the Roman armies conquered smaller nations... They especially liked to crucify people, anyone who uh, would participate in any kind of insurrection or any kind of rebellion against Roman authority. 
It was a good way of them expressing in a very visual, painful way who was boss. Uh, The Jews were a difficult group of people for the Romans to control. There were many insurrections uh, that took place in Palestine. And so the Romans crucified a lot of Jewish people. The historians put the figure at around 30,000. 30,000 Jews were executed by crucifixion by the Romans. And of those 30,000, many of those people would have been very innocent people, guilty of no crime. Many of them would have been people who who had stood up for a just and a righteous cause. But of that 30,000, we remember only one, Jesus. Why? What makes the death of Jesus somehow more special than the death of another 30,000 people? Why is it that his death is so special amongst the 30,000 crucified Jews that you and I should be talking about his death here today? Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 27 and take a look and see why. Many of you would have seen Mel Gibson's movie the, uh, about the, the, the cross of Christ. And you'll know how in that movie it focused very much on the physical, the actual, very real physical pain that Jesus would have experienced But as we look at Matthew's gospel, we see that Matthew actually says very little about the physical pain. In fact, in verse 35, Matthew simply says, when they crucified him. And that's it. That's all there is. There is no further discussion or description of the physical pain of Jesus. Why is that so? Maybe it was because the original readers were so familiar with crucifixion that they understood what that pain involved. They didn't need to be reminded by Matthew. But Matthew wants us to understand more than just the physical pain. Matthew wants us to understand more of what it was that Jesus endured. And so he speaks of the humiliation of the cross. We see that in verses 32 through to 38. And you'll see uh, these points made on your outline as well. The humiliation of the cross. Crucifixion was a full exposure public spectacle. It was designed that way. Uh, They crucified people on elevated positions, on hills or on on a bluff. They crucified people uh, in a location where there'd be a road uh, nearby where there would be passers-by, people who would see the crucifixion taking place. And to maximise the humiliation, the victim would have to carry the cross beam themselves on their shoulders from the point, from the place where they were being held to the place of the execution, along the road, through the crowds, so that they could be seen. But Jesus had already been brutally assaulted. You can imagine what it would be like to be carrying a crossbeam on your shoulders after you've been beaten and whipped. Jesus was too weak to carry that crossbeam. 
And so in verse 32, the soldiers forced a bystander, a man by the name of Simon, to carry it for him. When they arrived at the hill, in verse 34, the soldiers offered Jesus some wine mixed with gall. Gall is myrrh. It's the perfume that Jesus was presented uh, by the, the, uh, the Magi when he was, when he was born. Uh, but it's a narcotic. It's a painkiller. <laughs> That's not why the soldiers gave it to Jesus. They weren't interested in relieving his pain. I mean, pain was what it was all about. Pain was the purpose. No, they did this uh, so as to anaesthetise him so because they wanted him to, to, to calm down as they, as they hammered seven-inch nails so that he wouldn't, uh, 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 in, in anguish, thrust out as these nails were hammer-driven into his hands, which in the biblical term includes the wrists, and into his feet. Archaeologists have dug up uh, people, the skeletal remains of people who've been crucified and they've found these seven-inch nails. Then in verse 35, they did what was normal. They stole his clothes. They bargained with each other. They drew lots to see who would get what. And so beaten, he couldn't carry the cross on display, nailed and naked. Once I showed a video of a reenactment of the crucifixion to a group of people, some of whom were non-Christians, some of whom were Christians. Afterwards, one of the Christian ladies came up to me. She was angry. She was furious. She said, I don't like that video because my Jesus would have died a more dignified death than that. But that's the point. He was stripped of all dignity. He was humiliated. Secondly, in verses 37 to 44, there is the mocking of the cross. Four groups of people mocked Jesus as he hung on this crucifix. Firstly, there were the Romans. The Romans made the most of this moment. Uh, you'll recall from the last couple of weeks that it was the Jewish religious leaders who, who had taken Jesus to, to the Roman governor Pilate. Uh, they said that Jesus claimed to be a king, that he was some kind of an insurrectionist that if uh, Pilate didn't do something about that, that Pilate wouldn't be a friend of Caesar. The Romans knew that he was innocent, but they couldn't resist the opportunity to mock not only Jesus, but to mock all Jews. And so they stuck up this sign above the cross, on the cross. The sign said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. There were many people in Jerusalem that week for the Passover feast, people who'd come from all over, uh, from uh, the, the Mediterranean area and uh, up from Mesopotamia, uh, Jewish people and Jewish converts come to celebrate the Passover, people who spoke different languages. And so the Romans had it translated into three languages, into Aramaic, into Greek and into Latin, so that everyone could read it to maximise the mocking. In verse 39, 
There were ordinary people, ordinary people who just passed by on the road, who looked up at the cross and they hurled insults at Jesus. They thought he was a great joke. He had claimed that, uh, uh, that the temple would be destroyed and that he would rebuild it in three days, referring to his own body and his resurrection. But now look at him. Broken, bloodied, humiliated, suffering, dying. Why doesn't he come down from the cross now if he's so great? They mocked him. Ordinary passers-by. What about the religious leaders? We read about them in verse 41. Have a look at that. In verse 41, it says, In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Chief priests, teachers of the law, the elders, this is the religious elite, this is the religious establishment and they are all allied with one another and lined up against Jesus, mocking him. They hated Jesus. Throughout his teaching ministry, Jesus had exposed their hypocrisy. Their religion was supposed to be about loving God, but it was all about themselves. Jesus exposed that. And now they've got him exactly where they wanted him all along. This is their moment. Jesus wasn't the only one being crucified on that day. In verse 38, we read that two robbers were crucified alongside him. Uh, these were not petty thieves. The actual word that we translate as robbers uh, means that these guys weren't pickpockets. They weren't uh, just, just sort of you know, one-off offenders. These were, these were cruel people. These were the kind of thieves who would uh, assault people, bash them up, uh, even kill them in order to get what they wanted. Matthew points out that Jesus was crucified between them. There was one on his right, the other on his left. It's a nice touch, isn't it? Because it's saying he's one of them. He's just like these guys. Yet in verse 44, even they heaped insults on him. So Jesus was in agony, humiliated and mocked. But still, of the 30,000 Jews who were crucified by the Romans there would have been many other stories of uh, innocent victims who were, being who were humiliated and who were mocked in the process. Why was this crucifixion so very special? Because up until this point, this could have been just any one of those crucifixions. In verses 45 to 53, there are very dramatic developments. Developments which help us to understand the meaning of the cross. Developments which help us to understand that this event, that the crucifixion of Jesus is simply the most important event in all of history. An event which can change our lives. You see, when you take an honest look at the world that we live in, 
How do you see it? There's a lot of good in the world, isn't there? There's a lot of beauty in nature. I sat out on my back porch this morning drinking my first cup of coffee for the day and uh, listened to the roar of the ocean and the symphony of a dozen or more different types of birds cheeping and chirping and so on. There's a lot of good that we see in people, that love, kindness, relationships. But we don't seem to be able to get on top of the bad stuff, do we? We'd like to see an end to war and conflict and we'd like to see an end to selfishness, especially in others. But we can't control even our own lives. The Bible tells us that our problem is that we all reject God as the ruler of our lives and that we deserve judgment. There's a singer called Pink. She's been in Australia. I, I'm not a fan, right? <laughs> you might be surprised that I've listened to Pink. Uh, she was in Australia just recently and there was some kerfuffle about um, the Sydney Entertainment Centre and all that sort of thing. Uh, interesting woman who um, I guess you describe her as be, being attitude. She, and she kind of reflects in a sense, she captures the attitude of our age. She sings a song called Cause I Can. Uh, let me uh, read for you some of the lyrics from Cause I Can uh, without the expletives. I'll delete. When I say beep, that means the expletive has been deleted. Uh, in the verses, she sings about life. And in the chorus, she goes, So I'll cash my checks and place my bets and hope I'll always win. Even if I don't, I'm beeped because I live a life of sin. But it's all right. I don't give a damn. I don't play your rules. I make my own. Tonight, I'll do what I want because I can. I'll do what I want course I can. Uh, she's kind of the modern day version of the previous generation's Frank Sinatra who sung, you know, I did it my way. He had style, she's got attitude, right? I'll do what I want because I can. That is the spirit of our age. That is the spirit of every age. And there is a sense in which we are all like that. We, we like to live our lives our way without God. We've, in a sense, declared our independence from God. We may have done terrible things in our lives. We may have lived relatively good lives, but not one of us always puts God first. I'll do what I want, because I can. It is because of that attitude, which is, is within every one of us, that every person deserves the judgment of God. Every person, that is, except one, Jesus. For Jesus always perfectly obeyed God, his heavenly Father. Jesus never rebelled against God. Jesus was perfectly submissive in his thoughts, in his words, in his actions, in every way. Yet in verse 45, as Jesus hung on the cross at midday, the sky turned black. 
for three hours. In the Old Testament, darkness or the sky turning black was very, very symbolic. It was the symbol of the judgment of God. When God speaks about judgment upon nations, it is described in terms of the sun turning black, of darkness. And here we have that symbol. And then in verse 46, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I heard about a man who was speaking to a friend of mine. And he said to him, I have investigated the various spiritual leaders whom I might wish to follow. I've studied Muhammad and Buddha and Jesus and others. And I cannot follow Jesus. I cannot respect him as a spiritual leader. I could in many ways, except for the fact that on the cross, that Jesus lost touch with God. And so I can't follow him as a spiritual leader. But that is the very reason that we should follow Jesus. Because at this very moment, as Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, God the Son, actually became sin. The Bible describes that in various ways in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I've printed these on your sheets. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. It was at this moment that God the Father and God the Son, who had been in perfect relationship with each other, who had been in perfect fellowship, in perfect inseparable union with one another for all of eternity, separated. That the Father turned his face away from the Son. That the Father who cannot tolerate sin, who cannot have anything to do with sin, turns away from Jesus because at this moment Jesus became sin. How great the Father's love for us that he should turn his face away from his own son. At this moment, Jesus became sin. Jesus bore the guilt of our sin as he died on the cross and darkness covered the land. Darkness covered the land because he was being deserted by God his Father who can have nothing to do with sin. And suddenly this one crucifixion amongst many becomes profoundly significant, profoundly different from all other deaths that have ever occurred. It means that relationship with God is now possible for people who have rejected God, for people who've lived without God in their lives, for people like you and me who have not put him first. There's another development. We see it in verse 51. In the middle of the... uh, In in Jerusalem, there's a temple uh, where uh, man would go to meet God symbolically. 
and in the middle of the temple there was a curtain that curtain is the entry point to the holy of holies the very place where god symbolically dwelt there's only one man who was ever into, able to enter into the holy of holies who was ever able to pass through that curtain and that was the high priest and he was only ever able to do so on one day of the year and he was only ever able to do so after he himself had undergone all sorts of purifications and ceremonial washings. And he would enter through that curtain and he would offer up a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Well, on th at this moment, that curtain is torn in two. Not from bottom to the top as it would be if it was a man who had torn it, but from top to bottom because it was a miracle. From top to bottom, because at the point of Jesus' death on the cross, the ultimate sacrifice has been made for sins by the one who is the, the great high priest. And it means that access to God, entry into God's presence, is now freely available for all who trust in Jesus. To you and to me. There's another extraordinary development, an earthquake. And in verse 52, something incredible happens. Tombs break open. The tombs of faithful people of the past who trusted in God crack open. And many dead people walked out of those tombs. Scary stuff. It's telling you something very special is happening here and I'm going to talk next week more about life after death. But this resurrection of these people at this point in time speaks very loudly to us of what Jesus' death on the cross has achieved. It tells us that Jesus has paid for the sins and therefore life, eternal life, new life is available to all who turn back to God. The cross of Jesus means that forgiveness is now available. Uh, you may have seen an amazing story of forgiveness in the paper just a week or two ago of uh, Ken Marslow. Remember that? Fifteen years ago, uh, a young man uh, murdered Ken Marslow's son, who was 18 years old at the time. I think he was working in a pizza hut when he was uh, killed. I can't think of uh, anything worse than that uh, if there's something I'd be tempted not to forgive someone for it, that would be pretty high up on the list but there was this uh, extraordinary scene as this young man now this man now released from prison as he walked out of the prison gates that uh, there was Ken Marslow there to greet him to embrace him because he'd forgiven him and he wanted to help him unfortunately the man reoffended in other ways it didn't quite work out perfectly but the cross of Jesus tells us of an infinitely greater forgiveness even than that. You see, as Jesus hung on the cross, we're told in Luke's gospel that he prayed. And he prayed this prayer. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And friends, that prayer was answered then, at that time. Let me show you how, why I say that. In verse 54, Roman soldiers were chained, were changed. 
these may well have been the same Roman soldiers who earlier uh, in Pilate's palace had mocked and ridiculed Jesus in the mock coronation. These may well have been the soldiers who had uh, escorted him as he uh, walked to Golgotha. These may well have been the soldiers who hammered the nails into his hands and into his feet and who stole his clothes. Yet the darkness, the earthquake, the events of that day changed them. And they came to realise that Jesus was in fact the very Son of God. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, we're actually told that the centurion, the, uh, the leader of the hundred soldiers, and the other soldiers began praising God. They praised God. These were the ones who, uh, who executed Jesus. And yet they praised God for Jesus. Soldiers' lives were changed, and I take it forgiven. So too was the life of a thief. There were two thieves that mocked Jesus. But as they hung, dying themselves, one of them turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus' response, today you will be with me in paradise. A forgiven thief. Ordinary people were chained, changed. It was the ordinary passers-by who had mocked Jesus as he hung on the cross and yet later in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached to a crowd of thousands he said to them these words and listen very carefully. He said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Now, when Peter said, whom you crucified, he wasn't joking. Uh, this was, these were the same kinds of people who were around during that, on that day of Pentecost. Uh, Jews had gone to Jerusalem in the Passover. Whom you crucified. Some of these people would have been the same ones who had... Uh, shouted to Pilate, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Some of these would have been the same ones who passed by and mocked him as he hung on the cross. And yet as Peter preached to them and told them about the meaning of the, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we're told that 3,000 of them were forgiven on that day. The early church writings tell us that some of the first Christians lived their lives in great remorse because they actually participated in the crucifixion. They understood more than anyone what it means to be forgiven. Religious leaders were changed it was the religious leaders who had orchestrated Jesus' death. It was they who had lined up with each other against him on the cross and mocked him. But in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, 
as the word of the meaning of the cross and the resurrection spread, we are told that a large number of priests put their faith in Jesus, were forgiven and obeyed the gospel. I don't know what sins you've committed in your lives, how great, how small. But if God can forgive those who crucified Jesus, then I've got some good news for you. He can certainly forgive you. But you say, well, I didn't nail him to the cross. It wasn't me. Yet it was because of your sin. It was because you haven't put God first in your life. You might say, well, but I'm a, I'm a reasonably good person. At least I'm above average. I'm better than the next person. Or you may know that you're well below average. There's things in your life that you deeply regret and you can't change. Fact is, none of us loves God and obeys God in the way that we should. We all deserve his judgment. We all need his forgiveness. It is because of that particular need, our need of forgiveness, that Jesus willingly went to the cross. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't that things got out of control. It wasn't that the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders got the upper hand on Jesus. No, it was God's will for Jesus to go to the cross. And he obeyed God's will. He went to the cross to pay for all of your sin. Mine too. Mine especially. So what do we do about it? How do we respond each one of us needs to make a personal decision. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. It doesn't matter how many church services you've been to. Each of us needs to have a personal relationship. We need to personally decide about Jesus. We need to trust that Jesus' death on that day has indeed paid the penalty for sin. The penalty which we deserved. And in thankful response, we need to turn our lives over to serving Jesus. I met a Muslim man in a taxi the other day. We got to talking about the gospel within the first few minutes. He said, there's a couple of differences between our faith. I said, yeah, we believe that Jesus died on the cross. He said, no, he didn't. He was just taken off the cross before he died. I said, yeah, well, that's a pretty important difference because we reckon that's the crux of the matter. He said, the other thing is that we don't believe that uh, Jesus was God in the flesh. He was just a prophet. I said, yeah, well, we believe that he actually was God in the flesh. And uh, the most important, the, the profound significance of that is it was God dying on the cross for us. A Muslim man said to me, I said, that's because he paid for sin. He's paid for your sin, he's paid for my sin. And the Muslim man said to me, well, 
does that mean that therefore that we can just keep on living our life the way we always lived it and it doesn't matter what we do? I said, no, 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 no. If you understand that it was God's son who died for you on the cross, then you're not going to want to live for yourself anymore. You want to live for him and give your life over to him. And that's what each one of us needs to do. So I want to ask you today, have you done that? Have you turned your life over to God and received forgiveness? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. As we reflect on the terrible events of the cross, the agony that Jesus endured physically, but more especially the agony that he endured spiritually as he was cut off from you. Father, as he bore the guilt of our sin. Father, we acknowledge that we are people who have not always put you first in our lives and that we are worthy of that punishment. But Lord, to know of what Jesus has done for us, we can only but give you praise. And we pray for each one of us here that we would trust in him, that we would trust that his death on the cross has indeed paid the guilt which was ours, that forgiveness is now available. And we pray, Lord God, that we would turn our lives over to you, that we would stop living for ourselves and start living for you, the one who made us, the one who loves us so much that you didn't spare your only son, but sent him to die for us. And we pray this.